Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And this week's theme is what we like to call Itty Bitty Teeny Weeny. You're a Psychopathic Meanie. Special? It's so beautiful. It is. We're going to be covering cases that were derived from people of shockingly small stature. Of small descent. <laughs> yes. They're very tiny comparatively to their peers. And we are going to be focusing on Donald Pee Wee Gaskins. Can we take a moment to celebrate that his nickname is Pee Wee? His, oh, it gets really good, actually. I can't wait. Not only is his nickname Pee Wee, but that's what he thought his name was oh, for a very long it, time. His real name was Pee Wee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So strap in. I can't wait to hear the story. What is it that you that you kept saying in text message? Little men, big crimes. Yeah. (laughs) I loved it. Tiny people, huge Huge crimes. crimes. That is for (laughs) sure what's going on with our little pal Pee-wee today. Well, I am eager to hear about this little tiny man. This little squirt. Yeah. Uh, he would actually almost be cute if it wasn't for the horrific stuff that he did. You know, I did, did I show see, you a picture yes. of him? He looks sad he looks in his like picture. One of like the little seven dwarves. Yeah. Like, I'm so short. Cutie. And then when you know what he does, you're like, oh, come on, man. You had so many other things yeah. you could have done in life. Heads up, everyone. We will be taking advantage of the, uh, the short. Um, jokes. Yes, the short sure. jokes. And I will say just right off the bat, it's just our personalities to joke around. We mean no offense to any man that is small in stature. No, of course not. As a matter of fact, my own husband is not on the scale of super tall. No, he's so he's very and that's average. okay. Yes. That is okay. Yes. We're really not a-holes. We just Kind of try to lighten the mood. Maybe so we kind of are. All right, but maybe only, a little bit. Only to the people that just, deserve it. Yes, not to just like a the general little. population. Yeah, we're actually social workers. We're trying to make the world a better place. But if you cross the line of taking people's lives, then mm, okay, we're done with you. Anyway, enough about us. Let's get on with it. Yeah, let's hear about Pee Wee. In order to explain Pee Wee, though, I did want to begin this episode with a little bit of insight into the actual mind of serial killers, mostly because. A lot of our listeners will start conversations with me like, my God, what makes them do that? Mm -hmm. And we often bring up the nature versus nurture argument. I want to give you guys just a very quick little lesson that I actually used to teach when I was a psychology teacher at a local college here. Oh, okay. So my information comes from a neuroscientist, Jim Fallon. And I'll link the article in the show notes, but I use different psychology textbooks, of course, for my class lessons. But that's where I first learned of Dr. Fallon. I really did think when I saw the name that it was going to be maybe Jimmy, Jimmy? Fallon. I'm sorry to disappoint that's okay. you. He doesn't look like Jimmy. He's definitely... <laughs> Nothing he's, like Jimmy. He does okay. seem to have a good sense of humor, though. Good. And you'll see why. But the link that I've put in the show notes gives you a nice overview in, in layman's terms of his research. But my information actually comes from the psychology textbooks I used to teach out of. Historically, 
When the brain of a serial killer has been subject to scans and various tests, there is very little activity in the orbital cortex, which is actually located in our frontal lobe just behind our eyes. This area is highly responsible for our ethical behavior, our moral decision-making, and our impulse control. Another fun fact, our frontal lobe is not even fully developed until we're 25, which is why your car insurance goes down then and why you can't rent a car until then, because impulse control, not fully developed. So I didn't realize that that's something they used for um, the discount. Like, okay, your frontal lobe is, is developed now you can have your yep your 10% now, or whatever. <laughs> now your impulse control is yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, you learn something new every day. I'm trying. That's what I'm, I'm trying to give us all a little education here. So people with little to no activity in this part of the brain basically are kind of the, the freewheeling personalities mm-hmm. or sociopath. It's not just brain development either that Dr. Fallon and his colleagues have founded to be a part of sociopaths issues. They also believe that a chromosome abnormality is likely a trigger as well, especially in what's known as the warrior gene, which I won't like get a ton into that, but it regulates the serotonin in our brain. So this chromosome abnormality begins to show itself in males, especially during puberty. And so when they're developing their homicidal tendencies, brain scans show that they develop a sense um, or that they never develop a sense of attachment and belonging to the world, meaning that they don't empathize with their victims, which allows them to kill them. Dr. Fallon's like, not only do we have the low activity in the orbital cortex, mm-hmm. in our frontal lobe, there's very, very little activity. And I've seen the scans. It's quite profound. Mm-hmm. But then there could also be a chromosome abnormality as well in the warrior gene where it's extremely, it regulates the serotonin in your brain and it's extremely overwhelming. It gives you way too much. Now, does he say anything about the possibility, is this from trauma happening? We'll get there. Okay. Look at me jumping ahead. I know. I know. You're so curious. (laughs) I love it. So now something that you need to know about Dr. Fallon is that he scanned his own brain for shits and giggles, which I probably would have too. Oh, absolutely. And he discovered that he has the same low activity in his brain. And he also has the warrior gene abnormality, something that they believe is linked. They actually think that in, in utero, when you have the chromosome abnormality, uh-huh. it creates the low activity in your orbital cortex. Okay, From they, birth. Yes. They think the two or, are I mean, linked. before birth. Before That's birth. That's what I meant. Yes. Yeah. That's important. So why is Dr. Fallon not a sociopath, right? That's a good question. His family will tell you, and I have watched interviews with him, and his wife is actually kind of funny about it, but she says he's got a quick temper. He lacks em- empathy. He doesn't have a lot of empathy for people, which is probably why he's been able to study and talk to serial killers for like the last 30 years. So it's kind of like he he kind of gets it, mm-hmm. but he's just I not think, yes. on that level. Right. So he doesn't have empathy. He has a quick temper and he has low impulse control, his family will tell you. Mm-hmm. And he actually agrees to all of these things too. But what stops him from being a serial killer when others snap that have the same brain scan? The answer is threefold for Dr. Fallon. Brain development, genetics, as we said, like your predisposition for genes like the warrior gene, and early childhood experiences, something that Dr. Phelan did not buy into at all with nature versus nurture at the beginning of his career. 
until he did those brain scans of himself, he was not attributing to childhood trauma and childhood, early childhood experiences to be a part of who you become later on in life in terms of, of sociopathic tendencies. Mm -hmm. He also discovered that he's from a long line of killers, which is no surprise given the chromosome abnormality. He is Lizzie Borden's cousin. This is some fascinating info. Right? That I you're was hoping me. it would be. I try, guys. I don't know. After a couple podcasts, I'm like, did he kill somebody? And we didn't know <laughs> Right. I'm that's kidding. true. We may be covering Dr. Fallon someday. Right. I'm not sure. Are we bringing to light some concerns? Right. I don't know. If you guys don't know who Lizzie Borden is, maybe someday we will cover her case if we get enough um, requests for it. But she killed her dad and her stepmom in 1882 with an axe. And actually ended up not in a whole lot of trouble for it. Also, for the record, not accusing Dr. Fallon of murder. Oh, right. Not going there. Please don't. Sorry, us. Dr. Fallon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please don't take legal action. Yeah. I'm sure you're a very nice man. We really man. are trying to promote your research, yes, actually, on this podcast. It's, it's fascinating. fascinating. Yes, yeah. it is. So Dr. Fallon sustained no trauma in his early developmental years. He had a very nuclear, typical childhood. So can someone be born a killer or can society raise a killer? To neuroscientists like Dr. Fallon, the combination of both can create a killer. So what is the key to ensure that we don't raise a generation of serial killers? Please tell me. Many doctors say that it starts with good prenatal care, good postnatal care, and support for at-risk populations, which over our career, this is what we have always like focused on. Mm -hmm. Very early on in my social work career, I was actually a birth doula for teenage mothers. Mm -hmm. And I would help them with their prenatal care. I was there when their babies were born and then helped them with their postnatal care and taught them all about their child's development for the first five years. That's actually where you and I met. Yes, it is. Many, many moons ago. And so it really does make a difference. I'm going to include the graph on our social media link so you guys can take a look at it. But I want you really to pay attention if this interests you to the amount of serial killers of killings, not killers, of the amount of serial killings, so victims, in the U.S. by decade and take note of what was happening between the 60s and the 90s, which Amber and I had already started to connect when we really were looking into prolific killers. We were texting each other like, damn, the 60s, 70s, and 80s were a wild time. Oh, yeah, there were so many. They were just on the loose. And as we have been researching these cases, I can, I'm connecting because we put their birthdays out there. I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude was roaming around like Pee Wee yep. that we're covering today. He was roaming around at the same time as Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole mm -hmm. and had a very similar childhood. And they were all products of the baby boom war generation children. I do think that there's a definite key here. So even if you're born with the chromosome abnormality, with your low, which possibly causes your low frontal lobe um, activity, doesn't mean that you're going to be, you, you'll have a certain type of biting, you know, a personality type where you have low impulse control, you're maybe short-tempered, but it doesn't mean you're going to be a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But you combine that with very trauma tra and early childhood trauma experiences, now you have the makings of setting up the perfect situation to create somebody that could be very violent and have no remorse for what they mm -hmm. do. And some of doing. these cases that in that time frame, well, probably most of them really reflect that because a lot of the, the cases we've covered, traumas involved, neglects involved. Yes. 
And so it's almost kind of exciting. We were talking about it earlier to see that there is a small shift or the, maybe the, not even small, a well, significant shift. The number significantly goes down and I'm going to attribute it to these sorts of things based on the research that I've done. Not only is it the better prenatal care, postnatal care, better services for at-risk populations that are that are at risk for early childhood abuse and neglect, but also the fact that forensic science has boomed in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. And so it it is stopping. Police investigations are getting more in-depth. There's more accountability for police investigations. They can't just brush stuff under the rug or not have the right training that they're botching uh, these investigations because we're putting those parameters in place now. So it's stopping the actual serial killing from happening because it's connecting people to the crimes much faster than it was before. Where they could get away with it much easier. Yes. Because we've covered a couple already that the work was a little bit questionable. The investigation yep. wasn't Yep. And a thorough lot of it, and... I don't blame the police department for that. I no. blame a lot of it on the lack of training. They didn't know how. Um, not necessarily that the police officers were vicious and didn't give a crap or something like that. It's just that they lacked the knowledge and the resources to know what to do. But also... How about the fact that there's harsher punishments now when you murder? Yes. It's life in prison a majority of the time when it's not in self-defense. Even in the states that still have the death penalty versus the states that don't, it's not a situation anymore where, like a Larry Singleton situation, where you're going to be out in eight years. And I was just going to say, sadly, we've talked about some cases that tragedy had to happen before things Anything changed. Anything was done. Yep. But thank God they did. So that, yes. So that also... I think plays into this and is a key piece as to why we are not having as many violent serial killing crimes as before. But also we've, because of all the tragedy that happened between the sixties and the nineties, we've been able to come up with serial killer profiles. So profiling a person has become a lot easier. There's computer databases that put in different parts of the, the crime scene Mm -hmm. and data comes together. I actually talk about this in another a future case that I'm going to cover that I already have the research done for. Uh, but a database is really helpful in giving them the probability of, okay, here's perpetrators that are already in the system. Here is the data that you've put in for this crime. Here's your likely suspects based on that information. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. They didn't have those tools I before. Know. Good job, world. We've yes. come a long way. We're trying, I guess. So, and just so you guys know, to be considered a serial killer, you have you would have to have killed over three people during three separate times with cooling off periods in between. Most killers will kill during high times of stress, basically as a coping mechanism for their brain to bring that temporary relief to that stress, like a stress reliever. So there's just a little little tidbit. Typically, they kill for one of four reasons. Monetary gain. The literal thrill, which is the increase of that serotonin, a sense of power, which we're going to see in our peewees mm-hmm. this week. And there's often a justification of ridding the world of evil. So this is where you'll see a lot of the male serial killers justify killing sex workers because they're killing evil women who are tempting men. Yeah, that's like the the Dexter, Dexter yeah. style. Yeah. Like, it's okay because I'm killing the bad people. Right, right. You'll see in our case today that Donald Gaskins was often said to have been born to kill. But after learning the very brief and simplistic overview of the brain process and what it takes to make a killer, I'm going to let you guys decide on where you land on the opinion of Gaskins being born to kill or if society raised him to kill. 
or was it a combination of both? Because I actually don't know that there was any brain scans done on Gaskins. I would be super interested to know. Oh, definitely. A timeline of his life by the psychology department at the University of Radford said that Donald Gaskins was born on March 13th, 1933. You will find conflicting dates on that. In Florence County, South Carolina, to Molly Parrott, who was only 14 at the time. She was definitely less than ideal as a mother. Gaskins wrote an autobiography, just so you guys know. It is ridiculously expensive. Like, it, it's like $1,500. Oh, my gosh. So, I love you guys, but we actually do this podcast and all of our research for free, and I wasn't buying a $1,500 Sorry, Pee-wee. Yeah. <laughs> You're not worth that much. Love you all, but I wasn't spending that on Pee-wee. What I did was this timeline that was created by the University of Radford only used two references, and one of them was Pee-wee's autobiography. So, I know there's a lot of great information from there. However... Autobiographies, I always say, take with a little bit of a grain of salt. He wrote this when he was on death row. Mm -hmm. He could say anything. And he often exaggerated to make up for his Napoleon complex. In his autobiography, he said that his mother gave him the last name of Gaskins because she regularly was paid a dollar to have sex with a wealthy local man, Mr. Gaskins. And he had that guy had a gambling and drinking problem. She was reportedly paid $10 a month to live in a small shack with her baby and that Gaskins only weighed four pounds at birth. Mm -hmm. However, there are many, many other sources that were not a part of Gaskins' biography that took information from psychological reports and even from interviews with his mom that did say that she does not know who his father is. So she assigned him the last name and that Gaskins was the last of several, as they say, illegitimate. I hate that word. Yeah, Every child is legitimate, Jesus. She had a lot, a lot of kids, and he was the baby. It sounds like she picked the last name that sounded the most decent. Yes. Like, he was a wealthier man, mm-hmm. so we'll just go with that well, one. And, I, and that's probably that's what she told him. I'm not saying that what, he, what Gaskins is saying in his autobiography is a lie. That legitimately might have been what his mom told him, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know any different. And he wouldn't have been able to read the psychology, psych, the, the psychiatric reports that were done on him. He wasn't a part of the interviews that his mom did with those psychologists during his teen years. So he really just might not know the truth. Yeah. I don't want to pretend like I know what the truth is here. So I wanted to just give you guys both those things. His autobiography is called The Final Truth. You're going to see, though, that Gaskins does end up lying about just about everything to compensate for his feelings of inadequacy. He even claimed that he was somewhere between 5'6 and 6'2 in height. That is a really broad range. Pee-wee, this is not a fishing story. <laughs> you cannot exaggerate your height, sir. I will tell you, he's definitely not 6'2". I saw documentaries. I watch many documentaries on him. Unless he had a killer pair of heels. <laughs> he was, that's true. I guess I don't know. I don't know all of his wardrobe. He was exaggerating <clears throat> just mm-hmm. a little bit. Yes. I, I know some people who have done that. Oh, peewee. <laughs> One thing that I am confident about is that his mother was a sex worker and often made him watch while she engaged what in sex work. What is up with these mothers? I knew, I knew you were going to say oh, that. Thank you. I'm glad you were lot, prepared right? because, yes, we really have. Apparently, we, a, are we finding a trend here? I think look, we are. We are. We are seeing trends. It's what we do. Yes. 
It was apparently a popular thing to do in the 30s and 40s. Otis Tool, Lucas Cam, Lucas mothers were so. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Otis Tool and Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah, mothers were sex that. workers. Mm-hmm. Made them watch. I don't know. The biggest thing though is that his mom brought many men to the home and forced Gaskins to call each one daddy. Oh. But he knew, even at an early age, like every time she brought a guy home, he wasn't going to last. According to the book Donald Gaskins, Meanest Man in America by Jack Rosewood, every man his mother brought home was physically abusive, as was his mother. She did not supervise the children. She left them alone a lot. And when Gaskins was just one year old, he drank a large amount of kerosene and nearly died. Oh, my gosh. The effects of the kerosene caused him to have convulsions. Sometimes he would be unresponsive for up to 10 minutes. It is possible that he had a lack of oxygen to his brain at times as well, but not for the entire duration of 10 minutes. Oh, that's horrible. Yes. And those convulsions lasted till he was three years old. You didn't stop having them. They were really regular. So he had a lot of oxygen deprivation. Deprivation, mm-hmm. yes. Which I think definitely can plays into all this. Donald Gaskins was called Peewee due to his short stature. Some reports said that he was five two. You guys, other others claimed that he was five four, five five. But either way, he was really small. He was short. Yes. And as a child, he was very, very small uh, for his age. Some people actually speculate that his small stature was due to the kerosene. But when you see pictures of his family, they're all really quite small. I mean, some of it could have just been generational neglect and lack of nutrition. Oh, absolutely. He is certainly not 6'2", like he claimed. I'm going to throw this out there, too. This is the social worker in me. It is possible that he really did not know the scale for height because he was very neglected as a child and he had very little, if any, education. He legitimately just may not have understood the scale of height. That could possibly be... He's a teeny meanie. He's a little guy. That's why he's being featured today on our itty bitty teeny weeny you're a psychopathic meanie special. <laughs> I like saying that. It really has a ring to it. Does, it. It does. Say it fast. According to the Mind of Monsters documentary, in school, Gaskins was bullied for his small size and he'd get into fights daily. His teachers would often reprimand him instead of the other children who, according to Gaskins, would start the conflict Eh, somewhere in the middle lies the truth. The on that truth, one. yes. Gaskins learned from a very early age that he needed to be mean in order to be left alone. So he would physically fight anyone who made fun of him, boy or girl, and school was literal hell for him. So by the age of 11, he dropped out. I know you want to feel bad for him right now, but hang on. I to feel those like you, wrote, you put that in there just for me. Isn't I know. I did. I know. I can like anticipate. She's going to feel bad for him. And I, I, and I do. I anticipate child, but... what my co-host is going to say. Yeah. Crimemuseum.org described how he formed a gang with two other boys named Danny Smith and Henry Marsh. And at this time, they called themselves the Troubled Trio. This trio burglarized homes, easy for me to say, and they'd sell what they stole. They did this at first when they were 11 years old just to like keep selling stuff so that eventually they could buy a car and drive around and pick up prostitutes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. They would also steal cars and then piece them out, something that he does for the rest of his life. He is a career thief for sure. Okay. They'd also rape little boys and they would threaten the little boys to make sure that they would not tell. So now it's 1948, and the trio is 15, and they're bored with their willing participants of sex workers, so the three of them, trigger warning everyone, gang rape Henry Marsh's 13-year-old sister, Julie Marsh. Mm -hmm. 
According to Wicked Horror, Marsha's father tied the boys up and beat them until they bled through their clothing. I'm not sure how true this is. Other reports said that the other parents beat each of their children until they bled for the act. Either way, there was some extreme physical punishment and no actual law enforcement enforcement intervention for the rape. So parents, all the parents found out about this. Yep. Obviously. Yes. Oh my gosh, how horrifying though. Marsh and Smith moved away after that. So now his little troubled trio is it's just gone. a troubled uno. Solo, yeah. Yeah. So by age 15, Pee Wee now has fully connected sex with violence, and he liked it. There was something in his, the book that I mentioned earlier, not his autobiography, by Jack Rosewood, where he talked about when he was really young, he went to watch a circus act, and there was a boa that was eating, not because it was hungry, but because it wanted to kill, Mm -hmm. and it gave him an erection. That's what he actually says. So I think very early on, his brain had connected erotic feelings with violence. With violence and Mm -hmm. killing. Yeah. As I said before, he's a career thief and has an affinity for working on cars, but some of his stepdaddies would actually try to prohibit him from going to the local auto body shop and instead force him to work in tobacco fields. So then he just learned how to sneak around to satisfy what he needed. He would sneak away from the fields and go work on cars and steal them and piece them out to make money. It's still 1948. He's 15 still. He gets another cohort by the name of Walt, and the two break into a home. Some sources said that it was a relative, and others made no mention of it, so I always want to let you know when I find discrepancies. But during the break-in, a 16-year-old girl that might have actually been his cousin caught them in the act of attempting to steal stuff. And so she grabbed an axe and tried to hit Pee-wee with it. Oh, dang. Yeah. I mean, she went bad. She's a little badass. She, yeah, she went for it. But she, he was able to wrestle the axe away from her, and he used it against her. He oh. hit her in the head and in the arm and then fled. Thankfully, the girl lived, and she knew exactly who Gaskins was, so she reported him for the crime. But Walt got away and wasn't charged. Oh, wow. I admire her boldness. Like, Me too. Not in my house. Again, he's little. Yeah, you're I, right. You know, as a 16-year-old girl, I'm probably thinking I, I can take, take him. Yep, I can yeah. take this little shit. Okay, as a age that I'd rather not mention, little girl, there's times where I would probably be like, oh, come here, MF, or I can take you. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's why I don't carry a gun, because I'm pretty sure it would just be used against it's, me. It's your tiny, your tiny complex. No. It is! Oh, 100%! I will admit that 100%. I can say that because I'm not that much taller than you. Really I'm like not. an inch no. taller than you, so. <laughs> We're both peewees. Right, we are. But you know what it's like to be like, oh, don't underestimate me, because what I lack in height, I make up for in attitude. Mm-hmm. He was charged with assault of a deadly weapon with intent to kill, and during the trial was the first time that Donald Gaskins learned his real name was Donald and not Pee Wee. That was the... F- so he didn't know his name, uh, and no. you may have mentioned that, actually. I kind of I think briefly you touched upon it, as you like to say, but I didn't dive right into it. That's going to tell you guys just exactly how much attention his mother gave him in life. Yeah. He didn't even know his real damn name. Was he devastated? Like, what? He was confused. He thought his name was Pee-wee. He did not realize that that wasn't his name. I would almost be relieved. Like, oh, I have an actual name. Thank God, it's Donald. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Gaskins was sent to a reform school for boys, and according to the Radford University timeline, literally the first night at the school, Gaskins was approached by, quote, Boss Poss who was the leading kid at the school. Every school has one. And he was the one that everybody feared. Poss told Pee-wee that he was his new sweetheart. Oh. If you're picking up what I'm putting down there. Yeah, well, as soon as you say reform school anymore, because we have had cases with, Mm -hmm. and I've heard many cases with kids in reform school, and it's just... There's so many horrific stories about boys yep. in reform school Are around you that time. About one Carl Pinto? Yes, I am. Wow, good old. And Carl. that actually that Maybe led me we'll to cover that case. I, we should, but that when when we heard that case, I actually looked into reform schools because I was like, this is horrific. Right. Is this it's true? not the only one. <laughs> so now when I hear reform school, I'm just like, oh, oh, here cringe. we go. Cringe. So pause. Told pause. That's a hard. Boss. Especially when you're trying to be on a podcast and not make all your B's and P's go together. So he's Poss Boss? Is that what he... Boss Poss. Okay. It's a horrible nickname, I'm just saying. It really is. Poss told him to come into bed every night, to come to his bed, excuse me, every night or else. On the first night, Pee-wee did not oblige, and the next day, in the showers, supposedly, like you said about reform schools, I'm not sure... Pee-wee said that he was raped and sodomized by 20 of Poss's followers. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. So in order to survive, Pee-wee became the Poss's sweetheart sex slave for the duration of his time. However, in a documentary that I watched, the guards of the school claim in interviews, um, that was the Minds of Monsters documentary, that the 20-person gang rape never happened and would have been impossible not to have been noticed. I would think that would draw a scene, but, I I mean, we've heard so many things about these places that you just really don't know. I know. It's probably one of those things, too, where, again, somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Do I believe that Poss set people out to make an example of him so he'd know when I tell you you're going to be my sweetheart? Mm -hmm. That means you are my sweetheart? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Pee-wee also said that Poss sold him to others for sex so that he could get cigarettes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Either way, a year later, Pee-wee and four others who were also said to have been Poss's sex slaves, which, damn, how many sex slaves do you get? In a... Yeah, I'm, I'm taken... I'm taken aback this, again. I know. This kid's got some rain. Either way... The four, him, Pee-wee and the four others escaped the school, but they were caught and they were sentenced to 30 days of lashes, hard labor, and solitary confinement, which Pee-wee hated because he actually really liked to socialize, but at least he wasn't being raped. Mm -hmm. So then he runs away again, and this time with only one other boy, and he went to his aunt's house. She agreed to let him stay if he helped out around the house and on the farm, and this is the first time that he reported that he felt like he had a mother figure. He was 16 at this time. It's the first time he was nurtured. Wow. So this is the first time he's actually feeling something, like some sense of family, some maybe. Or somebody cared for him. Connection. Yeah. She convinced him that he did not want to live a life on the run. So he turned himself back into the reform school to finish his sentence. It did not last long. He runs away again. And this time he ran away by himself. And he ends up marrying a 13-year-old girl. It's 1951, guys. My memory's a bit fuzzy on how these things work. And I couldn't find a lot of a lot more information, but I'm thinking that what happened was 
he ended up having, they ended up having the parents' permission. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to put it out there and let it marinate because he turned himself back into the reform school just so he and Mary didn't have to live a life on the run. He wants to finish his sentence, which he does do. I would have maybe picked life on the run. I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> oh, no. Well, he, he did it. He so did the he damn did thing. He finished completed. his sentence. Okay. That finishes his sentence so that him and his 13-year-old love, he's, he's 18 Could be now, free. Could be free. All right. I'm going to struggle in with that, but proceed. According to the Mind of Monsters documentary, before being released from the reform school, they sent Gaskins to a psychiatric unit and evaluated him because he physically assaulted a guard. The psychologist report said, quote, We are not attempting to diagnose him, but he has an antisocial personality, and there is something from his previous development that is preying upon his mind. He is considered dangerous and has the paranoid homicidal tendencies. We are requesting psychiatric treatment and proper placement because he has been unable to adjust to the group. End quote. You know, I've got to give it to the psychiatric team at that time. I don't know the right word I'm looking for. Yeah. The psychiatrist right. would say that. You know, some of the reports that we've read in some of the cases have actually been pretty insightful. Yeah. And so you're sitting there like, yeah, right on. But then... They're insightful to us now in 2021. Yeah. But in the 1950s, when psychology was such a newborn... A lot of these reports were taken as just garbage. I was just going to say, that's where the problem is, that even though the info was correct, people were like, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. The outside Yep, yep. okay, but get your ass out, your time is done. Right. Because in other words, the reform school is saying here, hey, our treatment didn't work. He is dangerous. Can you guys find a proper placement for him now that he's an adult? Because he can't be at the reform school anymore. He's 18. But that's not how it worked. According to crimemuseum.org, it's 1951 and he's 18. He's living with Mary's family, which is why I thought maybe they got married. They were able to get married with consent from Mary's family. Okay. Because she's still, she's 13. Mm -hmm. He's working on a tobacco farm, and he gets involved with some insurance fraud schemes where farmers would pay him to set their barns on fire so that they could collect the insurance money. Apparently, a new owner took over, and the daughter of the new owner mouthed off to Pee Wee that she knew he was responsible for some of the fires in the area. Uh Uh-oh. As a way to shut her up, he hit her in the head with a hammer. Whoa. Yeah. Walkily, she lived as well. In 1952, he was sentenced to five years in the state penitentiary of South Carolina. And he called the judge a son of a bitch. So he had another year tacked oh. on. Napoleon, <laughs> Napoleon, Napoleon. Calm yeah. down, buddy. I could see how that played out in court. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And here's another one. Yes, exactly. And another thing. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Now in prison, he was once again raped and abused for his small stature, according to Gaskin. I was going to say, poor Pee Wee is such an easy target, probably, because of his size. Oh, 100%. And he's not a bad, like, he's not completely unfortunate looking. No, he's he's not. The picture that you showed me, he's he's not... A horrible I'm not looking saying man. that he's not going to make it on the cover of Fireman's Magazine. Oh, yeah, magazine we're not anyway, talking about, like, GQ here, no, but no. but he's not, we've seen... Worse. Worse. We've just co- we've covered worse, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I've but, been hit yeah. on by worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that Okay. So he knew that he needed to do something extreme 
to be in the league of someone to be feared while he's in prison. So he picked the biggest, scariest motherfucker in the joint, Hazel Brazel. Hazel? Hazel. Yeah. It's just, that's a lot of L's and A's. And I just, when you re- hear it, that when you see it written, it kind of looks like a real sturdy name. I mean, when you're talking about the biggest badass in prison, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a grandma name. named Hazel. Did so you? I'm like. <laughs> but I like the last name, Brazel. That's good. Because it does but... have the name Bra in it. I don't know. Maybe this dude's a huge pansy now that you bring it to my attention. I just picture this, like, you know, Let's six, throw five this, buff Let's guy throw this named out. Hazel. Let's throw this out here, too, though. Gaskins is the one that's saying he picked the scariest mf'er in the oh, joint. Hazel good point. Brazel. And so what he does is he slits his throat. Oh, okay. With every bark, I get angrier and angrier at my husband. <laughs> I might leave that in there. <laughs> he was supposed to be babysitting the dogs tonight, everyone. Okay. So I have a question. Did Hazel survive this? No, or... Hazel, he slits his throat. So he spends another six months in solitary confinement because the incident looked like he was defending himself. But I want to ask, did he really scheme all this and take the biggest guy down? Or did he just really get sick of being picked on for his size and got lucky defending himself? That's a good... I, I, you know, it's it's very hard to tell. But there it is. After this, he did escape prison in a garbage can, to which I say hashtag skinny bitch, because (laughs) Mary had filed for divorce. So he's like, oh, hell no, Mary. You're not leaving my ass. Oh, Mary's leaving him. Yeah, Mary filed for divorce. So he's like, this garbage can looks great, and hopped in there and successfully escaped from prison. I am not going to lie. I would have loved to see that pan out. Yeah. I could fit in a garbage can. I could totally see this happening. He's my size, so. I could probably fit, but I would have breathing problems. <laughs> Oxygen it, would be, be a snug fit. <laughs> so now he's 21, and according to Radford University timeline, he ends up joining a carnival as a worker with none other than Poss, the kid from reform school who supposedly Stop forced him it. to be his sweetheart. So Poss now, boss or boss? Boss Poss. Boss Poss. Oh, it's so Now horrible. I want to ask you, was he really mistreated in reform school by Boss Poss? Do we have one of those situations where it's like Stockholm? Mm-hmm. syndrome oh okay. where he initially was his abuser and now he's in love with him i don't know but do we have a, a plot Post twist com- Post comes up again later but they're friends okay oh they're friends now they're friends okay. and they are joining the carnival together he ends up marrying another woman by the name of junie holden even though technically he's still married to mary but she has filed for divorce by this time and this only lasts about a week because he was with the carnival when he married her and the carnival, of course, leaves town. When mm-hmm. he returned for Junie, she was long gone. Yep. She, lo- she left she dead. Him. Now enters another woman who was a worker with the carnival named Betty Jean. Oh, my. Her and him, they get hitched. He's still married to Mary. But he's just he marrying married all Junie. these other girls. Yes, but now it's Betty Jean. All right, now strap in because here's a real good story for you. Betty convinces Pee-wee to take her to Tennessee where they will bust her brother out of jail. So Gaskins takes the brother a carton of cigarettes with a razor blade hidden in it to the jail and delivers it to the brother. You following me? I I am following you. The next morning... He wakes up in the hotel room to police at the door. Betty Jean was gone, and Pee Wee learns that 
She was wanted in five states on felony charges and that he had just helped Betty's husband bust out of jail, (gasps) not her brother. Scandalous Mm -hmm. bitch. Pee-wee was played. So she and her mans stole Pee-wee's car and left him stranded (gasps) in Tennessee. Pee-wee. Yep, he was taken. He was taken. And what's worse is, you know, he anywhere he goes, if I'm telling you, you guys, that he went somewhere, it's because he stole someone's car to get there. He doesn't own anything. Gotcha. He doesn't have two pennies to rub together. So he steals the car, and then, in ironically, Betty Jean steals the stolen car from him. Oh, Pee-wee. All in the name of love. Love. Just can't make it work. Love is a fickle beast. It sure is. So now he has found out by police that he had escaped prison, remember, in the garbage can? Yes. And so now he's extradited back to South Carolina State Penitentiary. I'm not a professional. I'm sorry, you guys. We know words are hard. Back to South Carolina State Penitentiary. Jesus. I'm just going to leave this in. You all could just see I like how much penitentiary. I like <laughs> penitentiary. I want you all to know how much I struggle with my words to do this. So, anyway, you get it. He's back in prison, people. <laughs> he finishes his sentence, and he had some time added for the petty theft of the vehicle, okay, that I was just telling you about. Mm-hmm. So now it's 1961, and he's 28. It's a rough 28. Gosh, I'm I'm over here thinking he's he's gotta be at least like 50 uh, with this life nope. he's lived. He's still only he's... 28, going on 75. Yeah, absolutely. He's finally released from prison, and he, you guessed it, marries for a third time. No. Mm-hmm. Actually, would I'm this be fourth? I'm sorry. I'm wrong in my notes. These Mary's serial killers time. make me feel like I need to step up my love life just I'm, a tad. You know, I'm telling you. There's mean, love out there for everyone, you guys. <laughs> multiple. multiple times. He marries for a fourth time to an 18-year-old girl named Lenny. And soon after marrying Lenny, he molests a 12-year-old girl named Patsy who lived near his mother. Pee-wee was taken to a Florence County jail. And he was charged with statutory rape and carnal knowledge of a child. I feel like every time that I have had a little bit of sympathy, maybe, for Pee-wee, you remind me that he's Does a not deserve any piece sympathy? of shit. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, he's an itty-bitty massive piece of shit. <laughs> Lenny, so Lenny, his wife, does not condone this sort of thing. Good job, Len. Thank you, Lenny. Mm-hmm. She breaks up with him. Good. But... During the trial, he was um, sitting, like, outside the courtroom with two people, deputies or whatever. Mm -hmm. He ends up escaping out a two-story window, steals a nearby car, and gets away. And there were a lot of of stuff about his heists and and whatnot that I had to leave out. But at one point in time, he was being looked for by the police. And he snuck up on two police officers sleeping in a cruiser. And in the dew on the window wrote Pee-wee was here. Oh, my gosh. Which I can just, I actually totally appreciate and think it's really funny. So now he's on the run again, and Gaskins decides he just can't help himself. So he gets married again. Stop it. Oh, right yes. Now. We're on marriage number five, even though technically he's still married to all the other ones. Yes. So he marries. Pee-wee's on his fifth marriage, and I can't even get a text back. <laughs> Kidding, kidding, not kidding. <laughs> there, there. 
You just have to lower your standards because obviously these women didn't have any. I was going to say, they clearly didn't have any. So Jerry's name is Jerry Dolores. She's got two first names. I'm already Mm -hmm. a little skeptical. I'm seeing a trend with that. I know. With this man. Yeah. The two had plans to join the carnival with good old boss boss. Boss 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 boss. (laughs) Yep. So he's like, I know a guy. His name is boss 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 boss. And I'd like to think that's what he called boss 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 boss. Right. (laughs) Boss 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 boss. (laughs) That is exactly what he calls it. So him. fun to say. Right. Good old BPBP. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, there we go. that was yes. what it was for sure, I think. So he's like, let's go join the carnival as all good plans start. This man loves him some carnival. He does. He's informed that Poss killed himself after learning that his four kids and wife died in a fire. Wait, what? Yeah, so. Boss, 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 boss. Oh my god, that was a tragic no turn. I was not expecting. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I just the like poor family. I though. fling facts around like you wouldn't believe here. Every time I think like, okay, we've we've gotten through like the the deepest, darkest twist. Oh, it gets gross. Yeah, yeah, it gets worse. It gets worse. And I just kind of slap you in the face with them. I would yeah, apologize. You really but do. It's my style. With a wet hand. <laughs> <laughs> a leathery wet hand. <laughs> So sorry. <laughs> so as as you'd expect, this news devastated Gaskins. So his plans for him and Jerry to join the carnival were gone. And Jerry decides that she does not want to be on the run. So he's like, you know what? Fine. I'm just going to go back to my actual other current wife, Lenny Pembroke. I'm glad he has options Yeah, here. Yeah, he's keeping one in every state because yeah. he just never <laughs> knows where life's going to take him. On the way into Georgia, they hear a bunch of sirens. So he starts driving erratically and he crossed into a swamp and he just leaves Jerry there to deal with the cops, okay? He is a hero. Yeah. He still, on his way though, he gets back through stealing cars, of course. He gets back to Lenny in Pembroke. You know what is so bad is that I kept saying that Lenny's, I misspoke and said earlier that Lenny's last name was Penbrook. No, that's where she lives. Her last name is Dolores, which I did mention. I was going to say, I think you did say Dolores. But a few sentences ago, I was like, oh, he's going back to his wife, Lenny Penbrook. No, no, no. Lenny Dolores. You can understand my confusion, guys. This man has had a lot of wives. Yeah, so many wives. It's it's beer forgiven. Thank you. He was headed to Penbrook to see Lenny. He gets there. She is not happy to have him because he was all over the news. In some reports, it actually said that he drowned. But it also said that his wife, Jerry, was released with no charges. So now Lenny's not too happy to hear about Jerry. So Lenny does what any scorned woman would do. And she turns his ass into the police because remember that whole time he had escaped during his trial for the molestation of a 12-year-old girl. Get him, Lenny. You couldn't even write a soap opera about this No, you really, you couldn't. In 1964, he is sentenced to six years for the rape and an extra two years for the escape of the escape from prison and Mm -hmm. or from his trial, really. This was from the 12-year-old? Yeah, and six years for the molestation of the 12-year-old. He goes back to prison where he becomes a power man again in his recollection but i think he's still just a little bitch he served only four years and now it's 1968 i guess a guard wrote a letter of recommendation to the parole board about his good behavior so they let him go on the condition that he wouldn't return to pembroke for two years 
You gotta love the old school law way of thinking. Go be someone else's problem. You can come back here in two years, though. I'm sure you'll be rehabilitated by that. Yeah. You're not going to be the same little peewee shithead that you are right now. So this whole time, he's continuing to steal cars, rob houses, and in general, be a pain in society's ass. I'll give, I could give you all the details, but it's only an hour long show. According to the timeline in Radford University, it is 1968 and he's 35 years old. He began to be troubled by this feeling that he described as like a really bothersome pain. This bothersome pain began in his testicles, as all bothersome pains do, I would think. And I don't own a pair. I mean, I'm married. <laughs> hey, thank you for clarifying. Right, I don't, I I don't wear a pair, but I like I know where I can locate some. The This pain went up his spine, through his stomach, and into his head. He said that it would settle behind his eyes, causing him to have a migraine, and then a voice would come. Don't oh, you find that? This is getting a little dark. But don't you think about where that pain goes? From his his pleasure principle mm-hmm. of, of his body mm-hmm. to right behind his eyes where the orbital the frontal cortex lobe. is yeah. located. Okay. And this he has low activity there, and then all of a sudden he has a surge. And his brain doesn't know how to cope. It's stressing him out. Connecting some dots here, guys. I am connecting so many dots. You, did you used to play that? Like, uh, yeah, that I was actually visualizing connect the yeah. dots. We're, we're, it's like the Mona Lisa that we're connecting because we it's almost, so complicated. <laughs> she was much bigger than Pee Wee. <laughs> We're connecting very tiny dots. (laughs) So when both the voice and the pain would come, he would have to leave his house because he wouldn't want to cause harm to Mary or any other family member. And so he felt the farther away that he was, the better. Because he does go back to Mary. I think I forgot to tell you. It's a whirlwind. I'm sorry. Keeping up with his women. He does go back to Mary. As soon as he starts feeling like the sensation in his nether region, he's like, Yep. And then the pain behind his eyes. Mm -hmm. Danger. Like, he knew that maybe he could act out if that was happening. Yes. Okay. Well, and now we're going to see Pee Wee started riding along the coastal highway that stretched from Myrtle Beach to Savannah on the lookout for girls hitchhiking. Oh. The girls that excited him were the ones that were said that would say no to him. And he began fantasizing about how he would love to torture these females that said no. This became, he started putting this together as a fantasy, and then he makes it become reality. The only thing preventing him from doing so was the possibility of going back to prison, but now enter what we now know as the, quote, coastal murders. Trigger, trigger warning, because now I'm going to really get into his victims. Okay, I'm that going don't to survive, prepare survive. for that. In September 1969, he picked up a blonde girl in Polly's Island by the name of Angie. He sodomized her, bit off her left nipple, and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Oh my god! He stomped on her pubic bone, slid an 8-inch dagger into her rectum, and then pulled it until it sliced her vagina. <sighs> he... Oh. He chained her and took her to the water where he let her go so that she would sink. He took her money, but he tossed the rest of her belongings in the river. This was never confirmed by the police with any sort of evidence. Is this something that he stated that he had done? This is directly from his final truth. Oh my gosh. So disturbing. Now, six weeks after his first murder, his head started to hurt. And the voice that he knew now what it was, was a signal to kill, happens again. 
In October, so it's still 1969, he meets Daisy from Jacksonville, who had been working in Myrtle Beach. He did the same thing to Daisy as he did to Angie with the tortured rape. He bound her and put her in heavy chains and drowned her in a swamp. She was also never found. By Christmas in 1969, he had he had killed three victims, according to his timeline. Mm-hmm. Now it's November 1970, and he's 37. There's some differencing accounts on this one. Some reports say that he lured the girls to him. Other reports say that he found the girls after they ran away and got drunk and high. But either way, Pee Wee himself said that he took his own niece, Janice Kirby, and her friend, Patricia Ann Allsbrook, to his house to sober up. And he was also going to clean his niece up because he had tried to sober her up on black coffee and then she vomited on herself. Why do I have a feeling Pee Wee is going to be a piece of shit again? Mm -hmm. He's going to be a real bad piece of shit. So Pee Wee has a 17-year-old daughter by this time named Shirley Gaskins. Oh, wow. Yep, from his first wife, remember, who was 13, Mary? Uh, Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, ironically, he called Shirley Half Pint, which I just found that comical. So (laughs) Pee Wee and Half Pint. Pee Wee and Half Pint. Half Pint Shirley Gaskins was really close with Janice. Remember, Janice is Pee Wee's Niece. Niece. Okay. And in the Minds of Monsters documentary, Shirley said that Janice was a really intelligent and super kind girl. At first, she was reported as a runaway, but that just didn't fit into who she was. Shirley said that nobody thought that she ran away, and Shirley herself had suspected that her daddy had done something because one minute Janice was in Shirley's home, and the next, she was missing. Oh, no. What had happened was Pee Wee had taken the girls to a shack that he had in the back of his property. So he apparently shows his penis to Patty, who tried to run away, but didn't get that far. He ordered her to sit down, tried to have anal intercourse with his unconscious niece at the time, Janice, but ended up, she ended up waking up and trying to fight him. Then he was hit over the head by a lamp by Patty. These girls, like, tried... Kudos to these girls for trying to fight... This little man off. So the girls actually got away for a few moments, but he caught them when they were running down a dirt path into the woods, and he ordered them into the trunk of his car. Once back at his home, he ordered Patty to remove her clothes. Janice tried to escape, but was stopped by him hitting her, causing her to become unconscious. Patty tried to hit him with a two-by-six, but was unsuccessful. And then Gaskins, little peewee, hit Patty with a gun that he had in his hand. These poor girls. I know. He handcuffed the two naked girls that were now at this point, they're both unconscious. He had sex with both of the girls, and then he carried both to the trunk of his car. So both of the girls are in the back of his trunk, and at this point in time, they are deceased, okay? He did end up beating them. them. Well, he he beat them to death with his gun. Um, These girls fought hard. They did. And according to the Mind of Monsters documentary, he stopped at a family dinner with his own deceased niece in the trunk of his car. Oh my god. Which, by the way, you know how I always make jokes about little men that drive oversized trucks and it's just so obvious yeah. that they're overcompensating? <laughs> overcompensating. Yes. <laughs> well, Pee Wee Gaskins. Did he have a big old vehicle? He drove a big old black hearst. Get out of here. <laughs> I, I cannot make this shit up. I'm not even creative enough. And the the hearse had a sign, like a decal on the back that said, I hold dead bodies. And how true how, it was. Uh, I mean, 
What the fuck? He's always joked about hiding dead bodies. No one took him serious. He boasted about having his own private cemetery. No one took him serious. So he put the body of 17-year-old Patricia Allsbrook in a septic tank, and he dug a grave behind an old barn of a former tenant, um, tenant's place for Janice Kirby, his niece. It's so amazing to me because we've heard multiple scenarios where the killer does make jokes about oh, yes. th- their killings. Or- I know, which makes me think that we should stop with our dark humor because someday people... Oh, I know. We're already on FBI watch list from our, from our Google searching. Which, don't worry, we're both logged into our kids' accounts. Yeah, it's fine. It's totally fine. We're just going to get a knock on the door that says, ma'am, we're a little concerned about your 15-year-old's Google searching. And I'm going to be like, oh, yes, I will talk to him <laughs> about that. But yeah, there's this obvious sick thrill with doing they these do. things. They enjoy the power of you think I'm joking but mm-hmm. I'm not joking and I do think that a lot of them do it just to gauge reaction and if the person seems like they're kind of okay with it that's how they find their kindred people yeah. to do it together yeah. he would later say that he killed them because they were into drugs and not acting like proper ladies but in reality they turned him they turned down his sexual advances and that was something that his ego could not tolerate remember when I told you the four reasons why serial killers kill and one of them is ridding the evil Mm -hmm. okay now at this point i'm gonna go over the timeline of victims and then how he's taken down he goes back to his old ways of stripping and repainting stolen cars the pain in his head and the strange voice come back so he would head out to the coastal highway and by 1971 according to him he had killed 11 women in which he tortured in the same manner as the first three that we mentioned before, his niece and niece's friend. So he's literally driving down the, down coast, the coast, looking yep. for people, this hitchhiking, mm-hmm. and just like that one. Yep. I'm, I'm going to get that one. Angie and Maria were Pee-wee's next victims that took that he took from the coast. They were hitchhiking from William, excuse me, Williamton, North Carolina. The two had dropped out of the 10th grade to go work in Florida. So they're trying to hitchhike their way down to Florida. So now it's March 29th, 1972, and he picks up a black woman who was 20 named Martha Ann Dix. She was commonly known as Clyde. She was a lesbian transvestite as well as drug addicted and had an extensive criminal record. And on March 29th, 1972, Clyde went too far with Pee Wee by joking that she had been knocked up by him and was going to name the baby Pee Wee Dix. I love Clyde. Love me some Clyde. I love Clyde. That's incredible. Yes. So Pee Wee Dix, which if I ever get a fish, (laughs) might be named that. Oh, I love it. Uh, Pee Wee did not like this joke because it was about a baby. And he very much disapproved interracial relationships. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Pee Wee informed her to meet him after six And he had some pills and $5 for oral sex that he was going to give her. So Clyde agrees. He meets Pee-wee at the tenant's house. Once at the house, Pee-wee gave Clyde pills, handcuffed Clyde, punched Clyde in the jaw when he tried to get away, and he forced him to finish the bottle of pills. Then dumped Clyde's dead body into a drainage ditch. Oh my now, goodness. Yes. All because he made what was a phenomenal joke. <laughs> Absolutely. And for him, it was, oh my gosh, you 
I don't, I don't agree with interracial children coming into this world. He had problems with interracial relationships. What a sick little man. Uh, he is. It's so bad. He's so bad. June 1972, he's 39, and his next victim was Anne Colberson from Atlanta, whom he tortured for 96 hours at an old tenant house. On the fourth day, he says that he smashed her head from behind with a ball-peen hammer, dug a grave behind the bar where his niece Janice Kirby was. Okay, another thing that I read that he said in an interview is that he liked to just go to hardware stores and look at tools to see what would he could get the most torture out of. Gross. He's so gross. Now I'm not going to look at a man in a tool aisle the same way again. No, never again. So now we are on to October 1973. He's 40. He says that he killed Jackie Freeman, who was 19, after raping her and eating a portion of her calf. So now we've escalated to cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. December. Also the same, about the same time that... Our friends Addis Tool and Henry Lee Lucas are out necrophiling and cannibalizing. Yeah, what a what a scary, horrifying time to be alive. I know, for sure. December 1973, he's 40 still. He kills Dor- Doreen, who's 23. This one's going to hurt. Just hold on. And he killed Robin Dempsey, who was actually only one, after having consensual sex with Doreen. And then he raped and sodomized Robin. The one-year-old. He drowned them in a pond behind his home. And in the Mind of Monsters documentary, his daughter actually says, he just couldn't resist raping that baby. He just couldn't resist it. Oh, like, oh my To God. even speak those words. Okay, half pint. Thank yep, you yep. for your Appreciate input. Appreciate your input there. He raped, castrated, and murdered two young unnamed boys. Oh. This is all, again, according to him. He killed Johnny Sellers, 36, and Jesse Ruth, Judy. So she was 22, and he raped both of them before killing them. He tied their bodies with heavy chains and watched them as they struggled for air while they were drowning, tied together. So that happened in August, and he in 74, so he's still 41. So in the fall of 1974, he's 40 years old, and he says that he killed Horace Jones. He then... Oh, God, I hate Pee-wee so much. At this point, he goes to live with his daughter, So Shirley. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Does Shirley does Shirley know all of this at the time? She indicates in the documentary that she, she knowed her daddy was up to no good. And she actually says, my daddy used to tell me that he was a vampire. And he he just liked blood. The, they everybody his the whole town knew that he was that, no good. But okay. remember, he's going he's going out on the coast and doing those things. He's right. not doing them in his home hometown. So everybody kind she of knew. Even, she also said too, people just seem to disappear around my daddy. Okay, so mm-hmm. she she knew, yeah, but she didn't right like dig but into they didn't, it. Like she didn't witness, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. So at this point in time, it's 1975. He's 42. He says he forced two college girls and a 20 year old man to engage in group sex after he found them broken down on a highway. He killed them after castrating the male. Pee Wee later refurbished their car and sold it. Way to be resourceful, Pee Wee. Yeah. So it's 75, and he's 42 still, and he meets Walter Neely. And Walter Neely moves in with Pee-wee. We've got a Pee-wee and we got a Neely. <laughs> and they're together. Pee-wee he, and Neely. Yep. Pee-wee and Neely. N-E-E. 
E-L-Y. Now it's February 1975, and he's hired by someone else. Or he he's hired out to kill. Oh. Yep. Okay, so he's taking on a new now job as a hitman. He is an entrepreneur I, at heart. Yeah, a career man. He is. So he's hired to kill Silas Barnwell Yates because Mr. Silas was mistreating his mistress. So on February 13th, 1975, he killed Silas Barnwell Yates with the help of Diane Neely, his roommate's ex-wife. Remember Walter Neely, who he lives with? Mm-hmm. Pee-wee and Neely. Mm-hmm. Now we got Diane Neely. And she helps kill Silas Barnwell Yates. Now he decides, because remember, Silas was mistreating his mistress. Mm-hmm. So naturally he's going to begin a sexual relationship <laughs> with Suzanne Kipper. Sexual. The sexual. <laughs> the Yates mistreated mistress of course naturally why why wouldn't you yes that is the natural next step now diane neely who helped him kill yates Mm -hmm. and her friend told her friend avery howard about her part in the yates murder and approached peewee about getting more money for her part like, I helped you carry out this act, mm-hmm. and I told my friend Avery Howard about it, and she's saying I need more money. I feel like we're on oh. season 75, <laughs> episode are. 650 of Days yes. of Our Lives, and, and you're just... trying to keep up with the plot. Right, and we just <laughs> can't stop. Is Marlena dead? Is she not? <laughs> that's that's Hope. how I feel. Hope, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> so now... You really think that Pee-wee is going to take giving her more money and being threatened? I do not. No, no, no. That is April 22nd, 1975, when Diane Neely requests more money. April 23rd, 1975, he killed Diane Neely and Avery Howard for blackmailing him. I'm shocked. Yeah. So now it's September. Fast forward. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I liked that. Thank you. I actually was really impressed that with that, too. That felt like we transported Can we record- time. I like that. Oh, my- it really did. Can I- we record that noise? I can. And we'll just use it. We will. We will, because you'll never recreate it again like that. No. That was a good one. It just came out of me. So now we're in September 1975, and we're getting close to how this bastard gets taken, little man gets taken down in a big way. He ends up killing 13-year-old Kim Gilkins because she said no to his sexual advances. That's in September 1975. In November 1975, he kills Dennis Bellamy, who's 29, and Johnny Knight, who's 15. These are actually Diane Neely's half-brothers, and he does it with Walter Neely. So remember Walter in all this? Uh Like, Walter knows that Gaskins killed his ex-wife. Now Walter helps him He's like, I'm going to help you with the other ones. Now he's helping him kill his ex-brother-in-laws. Holy Toledo. Now here is how it all goes down. Mary Dunham was Kim Gaskins' fifth grade teacher. And she's the one that, I'm sorry, Kim Gilkins, guys, reading's hard. (laughs) Mary is the one that reports Kim Gilkins missing. Kim was 13 and in the fifth grade. Other fifth graders are about nine or 10. Mm -hmm. She was a small and quiet girl. Her mom had passed away the previous spring 
before she disappeared. She was really sad and she needed a friend. So for a school project, she was asked to write about somebody that she admired. And Kim wrote an essay about none other than Donna Gaskins, who I have not mentioned yet, but she is the fifth wife of Pee Wee. Oh, dear God. Yes. He got five women to marry him. What is it about this little short stack that... Again, nothing against short people. No, I am one no, of them, but I know. what is it that he's putting out there? Some kind of magical it's vibe. It's not raw male sexuality, <laughs> no, I can tell you that. It's really not. I'm really not sure. Holy cow. So unfortunately, Kim Gilkins was last seen with Gaskins as she spent a lot of time with the family because Donna kind of took her under her wing when her mom, mm-hmm. you know, passed My away. My heart breaks for Kim. I know. So Neely was picked up. Neely. Walter Neely, mm-hmm. remember him? Yes. Was picked up by police in question of the Gilkins' disappearance. And he could feel the pressure from the police, so he took them to the woods where he had helped Gaskins bury people and was basically like singing like a bird for investigators. They took 15 deputies out into the woods. They lined them up in a line with probes, which had the probes. It, it's an invasive as it sounds. Actually. I was going to say, probe always sounds it, very It is such a horrible invasive. word. But it had a T-like handle, so a long handle on top, and then it was just like a skinny probe. So they'd hold on to the handle on top, and they would literally probe the earth. And if the probe sank quickly down, then they could tell that the soil had been disrupted. Gotcha. Okay. So they start digging with a probe, and suddenly it sinks. And they discovered a shallow grave with two bodies. Then within 25 feet, they find another shallow grave with two bodies. And then again and again. So they have suddenly got eight bodies total. The victims recovered were Johnny Sellers, his girlfriend, Jessie Judy, Avery Howard, and Diane Neely, Johnny Knight, and Dennis Bellamy, Doreen Dempsey, and her baby, Robin. So let me kind of like put all of that just into perspective with the story. Johnny Sellers and his girlfriend, Jessie, were a couple that he found stranded on the highway. Okay. Avery Howard and Diane Neely were the two women that had blackmailed him. Remember, ex-wife of Walter Neely. Mm -hmm. Right? And she was like, hey, I helped you. I helped you kill that dude that was mistreating his mistress. I want more money. So he's like, yeah. no, I'm not he's giving like, you more yeah, money, but I'll happening. kill you and your friend who you told about. Mm-hmm. The, yep. or told I remember about that. And then Johnny Knight and Dennis Bellamy were Diane Neely's brother-in-laws. Doreen Dempsey. Um, something else about Doreen was actually that she was pregnant and she was pregnant with a black man's baby. And that he is, didn't approve of he that. He didn't approve of that. So that is why he killed Doreen. And why he killed Robin was because she's only one, was because she was inter, an interracial child. And he did not approve. He is such an asshole. Oh, he is evil. Son of a bitch. The investigators said that the smell of decay was so intense that some of them had started smoking so that they would smell the intense cigar smoke to make it more tolerable. Oh, wow. so they're like, we, we want to smell the cigar yep. over this. Yep. Oh, yeah. I bet it was bad. But notice how I sa- I didn't say any of those victims found were Kim Gilkins, because that is what started this. They're looking for Kim. Yeah. They, yeah. None. She wasn't found there. Gaskins tried to flee when the bodies were found, but they caught him. Both Gaskins and Walter Neely were tried and charged with the eight murders. So on May 28th, 
1976, Gaskins was found guilty of murder for Dennis Bellamy. He was sentenced to death by electric chair. chair. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is something that terrifies Pee Wee. He was quoted in an APN News article in an interview saying that the death in the electric chair is, quote, one of the most malicious, most coldest, premeditatiest murders that there is. It can't be no worse than if I was to sit down and plan to kill somebody. I no, know what you're going to say. I, don't. I know. I see your face. First of all, I will say I don't disagree with Pee Wee because it's, mm-hmm. I, I feel like, such a horrible way to die. 100%. But did he really say? It is a direct quote, my dear. Premeditatious. And from now on, that is how we're going to say I am going to write that down. On this show. That could be my favorite word that yep. I've ever heard it made is up. the most premeditatious. That is premeditatious. Yep. <laughs> I wish we would have covered uh, Myra and Ian before this or after this case. So we could have been like, they I are know. the most cold, bloodiest, premeditatious murders. Literally the only thing that I like about this case. Yes. Yep. Is that, that word. word. So in an effort to make a deal, he promised them, because remember, he's scared to death of the electric chair. So he's like, if I lead you to more bodies, can I avoid the death penalty and the electric chair? So in 1977, he takes the stand and confesses to all eight murders that he was on trial for. Because remember, he was sentenced to death because he had only been through one trial. They were trying him for, you know, uh-huh. um, for one person, excuse me. And, they, so, and he got death. He, he got the death sentence right. from So he's that. like, listen, if I confess to all eight and I tell you about some more, can I not be on death row anymore. So he confesses to all eight murders that he was on trial for, plus his niece, Janice Kirby, and her friend, Patty. And they were found eight years after they went missing. He told them where their bodies were, and they did find them. them. They recovered them. So now he's incarcerated with, with a life sentence, but he just won't let prison stop him. Can't stop, won't stop. No. Ironically, after he had already confessed, um, the death penalty was actually abolished. Mm. And so it would have been taken off anyway. But then it becomes reinstated Oh, while he's incarcerated. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was some political power struggles happening. In prison, he's in, now in prison for life, he was hired by Tony Simo to kill a fellow inmate who was on death row for killing Simo's adoptive parents during a gas station robbery that they owned. Dear Lord, has this man mm-hmm. no end no. to his killing? Mm-hmm. No, but we're on the final... Season now. Season 675. Yes, here it comes. Here we go. In Tony Simo's mind, the death penalty was taking too long, which I get it. It does. It can. Yeah. Yeah, it can. So over phone conversations that were recorded, Tony Simo and Pee Wee Gaskins plot the murder of Rudolph Tyner. Now, Shirley warned the prison that her dad was planning to kill someone. Oh, Shirley finally has a voice in this. Yes, okay. she's like, hello. They didn't take her serious. Of course. Why, <laughs> why would they after right. he's murdered like, so because many people? They were people. very arrogant when they're like, it's, they told her it's impossible. He can't kill somebody in here. Okay. Weird, because he had already killed somebody in prison. Remember when he slit the throat of Hazel? Yes, Hazel. What was that last Hazel name? Brazel? Yeah. Brazel? Bra- oh, yeah, had a bra Brazel, Brazel. Brazel. You never <laughs> should a give a man a... A name with the word bra in it or the color of the eyes. 
Anyway, at first, he tries to poison Tyner. Twice, actually. But it just made him and a few others sick. And in the documentary, you can hear little Pee-wee talking. And the way that he's talking about it to Simo is just crazy. Because he's like having his vernacular, his southern... I love a good southern accent. But not this one. No, no, no. But I am a sucker for a southern accent. And, And he just talks the only way he knows how, mm-hmm. you know, just listening to him you're carry gonna break, on. You're going to break out a southern accent. I'm trying so hard. Do you see me swallowing extra? <laughs> you're, you're getting ready. I'm trying, but I'm trying not to because I don't want anybody to be offended because oh, I actually you're right, you're love right. southern accents, but I'm afraid that somebody will write us online like, that I offended them. Garbage. Right. Okay. But you guys can totally make fun of northerners' accents. I know we sound different and we say oh. stuff yeah, a lot. <laughs> So Simo got Pee-wee some explosives. Oh my god. Per Pee-wee's request. He's like, I just need some explosives up in this bitch. The poison's not doing it. The poison's not working. Time to escalate to explosives. Pee-wee fashions what he tells Rudolph Tyner is a communication device for between cells. So he's got this, this basically a PVC pipe thing, and it's got explosives in it, and it's got a cord that's connected to it. It's very primitive looking. But Rudolph Tyner had a very, very low IQ. Okay. And so he's like, oh, this is going to be a like playing telephone, basically, between cells. So he tricks him into trying it out in the bathroom when they're both in their own cement stall. My gut tells me this is going to end badly. It does not end well. Nope. When the device was put to Tyner's ear, Pee-wee detonated it and killed Rudolph Tyner. He then flushed the rest of the device from his end down the toilet and walked out like he was so shocked like oh my gosh what was all this ruckus oh wow and there tyner was dead they showed it's very easy to find pictures like crime scene pictures of his death i was it pretty i'm guessing pretty shocked yes so the calls were discovered and now he's convicted and put on death row again he once again starts making confessions of murder as a plea to he's trying to like look i'll confess again yes So what he does is he makes confessions of killing 80 to 90 women, mostly, starting in 1969 on the coast. He said he'd pick up hitchhikers, he'd torture them, sometimes keeping them alive for days. He said that he'd dump them in marshes or sink them so that it would be harder for people to find them. He even admitted to killing 13-year-old Peggy uh, Tino, C-U-T-T-I-N-O, sorry guys, whose parents were very prominent. Her father was a professor at Clemson University, and prosecutors had already charged William Pierce to life in prison for the murder because Pierce had confessed. So Pee-wee's confession was rejected. Oh, so do we have another case of him just Uh throwing... I'm already in here. ...murders out there to... He's trying to... Not only is it inflating his ego, that he's going to be the worst of the worst, right? His little man syndrome. We've got Napoleon... Yes. Coming out here. But, but he's trying to save himself. Yes, he's from trying the to death get off penalty. Death, death row again, because it worked the first time. He claimed 10 to 12 victims a year. He told his daughter that he was like a vampire. He just got something in him that needed to see blood. In the documentary, Shirley was talking, and he's like, she's like, you know, he never said that he was sorry. Not once. Not one time. Not so once no remorse for ever. anything. Mm-mm. She said that she thinks that her dad was born to kill. 
and was just very sick with a split personality. In the Minds of Monsters documentary, law enforcement does not believe that the coastal killings were true because there aren't accounts or reports from missing persons that would coincide with his story. I and remember they, you saying that some of those victims mm-hmm. that he reported were never found. Yep, and he they believe that he was just attempting to get out of the death penalty again. So all those victims that I named at the very beginning of the timeline, they believe were not necessarily true. Forensic psychologists stated that he is so inadequate and has to lie and exaggerate to compensate his entire life that it would not be out of character for him to apply that to his number of victims. Is it possible that he killed over 100 people? Yes. Is it probable? No. Shirley stated very matter-of-factly that his number of victims was 105. She said, I can tell when my daddy is lying and my daddy wasn't lying. Well, I'll be. She also said that her grandmother was a good mom to Pee Wee. So I'm not sure how much okay, of a so reliable Shirley just source all credibility <laughs> for all of eternity. But Shirley wasn't there when Pee Wee was growing up, so possibly that's what Grandma and Pee Wee were telling okay, her. Yeah, you never you're know. Right. Maybe Pee Wee was like she, you know, she was a good mom. And yes. So we'll give her a little bit of credit. So he spends his final months writing his autobiography called Final Truth with the help of author Earl Wilton. And there's some criticism that his psychopathy resulted in wanting to be known as one of the worst killers in South Carolina. I don't disagree with that. Right, because of his Napoleon complex, which if you don't really know, is an inferiority complex that's normally attributed to people with short stature. Shirley had said that they had to have him cremated because a lot of people said that he was the devil's son. And I thought that I knew where she was going with this, but I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Indulge me, please. Way wrong. Hold on. She said that he was, people said he was the devil's son and they wanted to worship it. So they would try to steal his body. Oh, Oh, okay, yeah, didn't see it going that way. We took a real wrong turn into the backwoods of some sort of place I don't want to be. Please get me out of this dark place. (laughs) So that was her her reasoning for why they had him cremated, Mm. and she took the, the people on the documentary right to where she spread her daddy's ashes in the woods where he could sleep with the snakes because anytime he ran away from prison, he would hide out in the woods, and he would boil the water from the swamp to be able to drink it, and he'd eat snakes like he was always telling her that he sleeps with the snakes Uh, what a comforting bedtime story (laughs) for Shirley (laughs) gather around honey let me tell you about my sleeping let me tell you about the time I ate those snakes yes I have no idea if that's why they had him cremated or not, or if they were just afraid that his grave would be vandalized. I'm, I don't oh, know. God, also, it's cremation, so hard to tell at this cremation point. Cremation is much uh, more cost efficient than mm-hmm. a gravestone and things like that. Mm-hmm. Shirley said, I will always love my daddy. I testified against him because I didn't agree with what he'd done, but you can't stop love, so I will always love my daddy. I need to see Shirley. Oh, she's precious. She just to see her after this. No one else in the family was disturbed like him. I want to point that out there. So is it genetics? Or was it all his early childhood experiences? Or was it his early childhood experiences, the kerosene, mixed with the poverty and just the way society shaped him through all of his, not just early childhood, but then his formidable teen years, and then as a young adult? What do you 
you think, Amber? I think it's a combination, honestly. I can't give a solid opinion one way or the other. He talks about that pain that goes from his testicles to behind his eyeballs. I do think there was some brain damage there. Was it to his orbital cortex? Where the impulse control happens, where his decision-making says, where his empathy is, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. I think that that's why I feel like it's a combination. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know trauma in itself, it's so damaging. Right. But when you put in the other factors with there could have been damage. Right. Um, Yes. I think that it all goes together into a horrible concoction. I think it's various factors that Mm -hmm. contribute to Pee Wee being a disgusting little little man an itty bitty teeny weenie <laughs> totally psychopathic meme. weenie i just had dun, to jump in for weenie dun. because you say it much better than me i'm always like when you do it i'm like i think i uh-huh. changed the words up on that one but i just like way, shake my head to it I'm like teeny weenie <laughs> <laughs> you really were nodding along itty bitty teeny weenie you're a psychopathic meanie peewee donald Gaskins. All right. I just could not resist this brain bath that I picked. I know we keep doing burglars, but you know what? As long as burglars keep doing funny shit, we are going to keep reporting it. (laughs) Yes. So this one, I couldn't find where it actually took place. It just mentioned um, someplace on Oak Hill. I don't know what state that is. If you're from there and you recognize, hey, give me a shout out and let me know. Because there's vague information. But essentially what happens is this dude broke into a family home, mm-hmm. is hiding upstairs. And the husband and wife come home. They're putting their groceries away, just doing their regular, going about their regular thing. Mm-hmm. And the husband tells a funny joke and the burglar laughed (laughs) which is something i would do me too i'm a giggler so i would i would totally blow my cover for sure i would not be able to resist myself can you imagine though you're just unloading your groceries you know being funny with your spouse or whatever and someone's like just yucking it up and then all of a sudden yeah right so you creepy. Know, you just did the same laugh that you did for the masturbating burglar, and I'm just, I don't know if it was the same or that's, not. That's the official oh. burglar. <laughs> so creepy. That, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> so that's how the burglar laughed. You heard it here first. Yeah, you sure did. And they're like, um, holy shit. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the husband was like, see, I'm funny. I told you I was funny. You're so right. Right. But the joke was so good yeah. that even the burglar laughed. Right. That's how we caught the guy. And then, yeah, they call police and like, somebody's in our house. Sure shit. Someone was hiding in their upstairs closet. <laughs> that had a great sense of humor. That, right. Just couldn't resist himself a bad dad joke. But, oh, yeah, I thought that was funny. Lord. You guys, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode and learned a little something. If you would like to be the first to know when new episodes are launched, go ahead and subscribe for free to our email subscription. It's not a spam thing. All you'll do is get a link to every episode that's posted at the exact time it's posted. That's on our website at crimecuriouspodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, crime.curious. That's where we post pictures of our perpetrators. And And now our brain baths. I think we're going to have to put the pooping 
masturbating <laughs> guy. I don't have a picture of our jokester guy. Oh, I do have bath salts guy from a couple episodes, though. I yes. can post that picture. I think the world needs to see some of these because mm-hmm. it makes the story that much better it to does. see the face. <laughs> the facial expressions are the best. You're welcome, everyone. On Facebook, we're Crime Curious Podcast. And we do have a Twitter, but no one has tweeted us on the Twitter. Twitter? That's why I don't, I don't even know how to use it. But we've got one, and it's Curious Crime. Until then, we hope you keep it curious and we hope you keep listening. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. 